Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors. And if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, maybe because uh, today is your, uh, your first Sunday here with us, or for whatever other reason, I usually hang out up front right after the service. I'd love for you to come on up and uh, say hi. If you are a Dallas Cowboys fan, you are more than welcome to come up and say hi, and uh, Tommy and I will, uh, will commiserate with you. But um, I, as Paul mentioned, we are starting a new series that we're calling uh, Acts of God, and I'm kind of excited about this series because we're going to be looking at uh, a section of the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's the book that comes right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But to kind of get a running start of getting in- into it, I was thinking about uh, this week, this year is now 2016, and I don't write too many checks anymore. I actually do most of my, uh, you know, bill paying and stuff online, but I did have to write out 2016 for the first time this year, and if you're like me, usually up until about March, you have to consciously think about what year it is, you know, because I'm so used to 2015, now it's 2016, and then actually by the time I get to March, it's time to start working on my taxes, and I do my taxes myself, and I use TurboTax to do that, and for some reason, TurboTax 2016 is what you use to do your 2015 taxes, so just about the time that I get the year straight, TurboTax gets me all confused and I'm not quite sure what's going on. And leaving aside for a minute my confusion and maybe your confusion about what year it is, have you ever stopped to think why we call this year 2016? Why is this 2016? The reason is because we base our calendars on the supposed birth date of a man who was killed as a criminal. And you don't normally think about it that way, that our calendars are based on the birthday of a criminal. But if you were someone who lived 2,000 years ago and you kind of were able to take sort of a a back-to-the-future kind of a trip and see what's going on today, you'd be saying, these people are numbering their years based on the birthday of that criminal? And we just finished celebrating that criminal's birthday on December 25th. And we don't normally think of Jesus of Nazareth as a criminal. Most of us probably think of him as the savior of the world. But if you were alive in Jesus' day, if you were any other than a number of maybe a couple of dozen people at the end of his life, Jesus of Nazareth was viewed as a criminal. That's why Jesus was crucified. And so most of his contemporaries would be shocked to think that 2,000 years after Jesus' death, we are using his birthday as the foundation for our calendar. We talk about A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord, or B.C., before Christ. And that's what our calendar is based on. And then if you step back and look at an even bigger picture, you realize that there is no other person in Western civilization who has had as much influence on our culture as this man who was crucified as a common criminal. The, uh, the historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who's, uh, who's been at Yale University, he puts it this way. He says, regardless, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. 
If it were possible with some sort of a super magnet to pull up out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of Jesus' name, how much would be left? I mean, you think about the hospitals, if you think about the schools, if you think about the orphanages that have been built all over the world, the vast majority of them, especially those in the western part of the world, the vast majority of those can trace their roots back to something having to do with Jesus of Nazareth. In the days when Jesus was alive, women and children, especially children but also women, were treated no better than, than, than cattle in some sense. They were viewed as pieces of property to be owned and to be used. Our fundamental understanding of human dignity and human rights traces itself back to our Judeo-Christian heritage. And the list goes on and on and on in all of the different ways that Jesus of Nazareth has in influenced our culture. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, there's a great book called Who Is This Man? by a pastor out in California named John Ortberg. And I suggest you pick it up. It's got, he's got chapter after chapter after chapter talking about the untold influences that Jesus has had on Western culture. But if you were to ask people who they think Jesus is, people's conceptions of him would really be all over the map. They're going to vary from some people, a lot of people are actually going to see Jesus as being a great teacher. Others are going to view him as a miracle worker. Some are going to say he was an itinerant Jewish rabbi. And others are going to see him as a revolutionary who's trying to help the, the, the trodden down people rise up against the leadership of the day. And then, of course, a lot of us would say that Jesus is the Son of God who's the Savior of the world. Disagreement as to whether Jesus actually said the Lord's Prayer or not, as to whether Jesus actually walked on water or not, disagreement as to whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, disagreement over and over and over and over again about the various things that the Bible tells us that Jesus did. And I believe firmly that the things in the Bible are true. I believe that Jesus did walk on the water. I believe that he did say the Lord's Prayer. I believe that he did indeed rise from the dead. But I know that there are some of you here today who would say, I'm not so sure about that. But if you cut through all of that, if you pass over all of that, if you skip all of the various conceptions that people have about who Jesus was, almost everybody, pretty much every scholar would agree that there's one undeniable fact about Jesus of Nazareth. And that is that he was crucified by the Romans at the request of the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus was crucified by the civil authorities at the request of the religious authorities. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in this man whom the Romans viewed as a threat to the kingdom of Rome and the Jews viewed as a threat to the religious authorities, 2,000 years later, no individual has as much influence on the history of the world as has this man, again, about whom the only thing that people agree on 
is that he died. He had gotten the, the religious leaders and the civil leaders who were sworn enemies, he got them so upset at both of them that they were willing to work together to crucify him. And the question I want us to ask today is, how in the world did we get from there to here? How in the world did we get to where the vast majority of Jesus' contemporaries would have seen him as a criminal to the point where millions, billions of people in the world today would view him as being the savior of the world? There are four biographies that were written about Jesus, four major biographies that were written about Jesus by his contemporaries. We know those as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one written by Matthew was written by someone who spent a lot of time with Jesus. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. He spent pretty much every day for a period of three, three and a half years with Jesus. Same thing is true about the gospel according to John. Mark wrote his gospel based on information that he got from Peter, who was another person who spent most of his time for this period of three or three and a half years with Jesus. But Luke's a little bit different. The other three were Jews. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. The other three were Jews who hung out with Jesus on a daily basis. Luke didn't. Luke probably never even met Jesus. Luke was a Gentile. He was a doctor. He was a historian who researched to find out what had happened in the life of Jesus. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He read other documents. He talked to people who had spent time with Jesus, and he put together his account of Jesus' life. And so he wrote about all sorts of different events in Jesus' life. He recorded all sorts of different things that Jesus said. And at the end of Jesus' life, he had about two dozen or so followers, most of whom actually fled when he died. And so the question I want to ask today is, we're at the point in world history where there are approximately 2.2 billion Christians. How did we get from two dozen to two billion Christians, about one-third of the world's population in the span of these 2,000 years. And that's where Luke's second book comes into play. Luke wrote two books. The first one we know is the Gospel of Luke. It's a biography of Jesus. It covers the 37 or so years of Jesus' life from uh, 4 BC all the way to his crucifixion in AD 33. And again, focusing mostly on the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. But Luke wrote another book that we know as the book of Acts, and it covers the 30-year or so span from the time that Jesus was crucified and rose again until just shortly before the temple, the, the, uh, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Luke writes at the beginning of the, of the book of Acts, he says, in my former book, Theophilus, and Theophilus was probably some sort of a Roman official to whom Luke was writing, Luke says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So Acts picks up again, as I mentioned, where the gospel of Luke uh, leaves off. And these apostles to whom Luke is referring. If you're not familiar with them, these apostles would have been the remaining 11 disciples. There had been 12 main disciples of Jesus. One of them, Judas, took his own life after he had betrayed Jesus, and there were 11 of them remaining, and Jesus began to refer to them as the 11 apostles. 
Now, if you think about these guys, these are not the guys that you would have chosen to carry out your mission on earth. These are not the guys that you would have expected to change the world, to begin a movement of which we are now part as Christians, as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later. See, most of them were uneducated. They might have been able to read and write somewhat, but they weren't like the most educated people of their day. Several of them were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector. And if you're familiar with, with the history of the Middle East at that point, Jewish tax collectors were collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. And this one guy named Matthew would have been viewed as a traitor by his fellow Jews for collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. The only one of the 12 who may have had anything going for him was this guy Judas, and Judas was the guy that betrayed Jesus and ended up killing himself. So you would not, if you wanted to pick 11 guys to start a world-changing movement, you would not have picked these 11 disciples. And to top it all off, their leader, Jesus, had just been crucified, and they were so scared that they fled. And after he rose from the dead, he had to actually walk through a wall in a miraculous way to get into the locked room where they're hiding. So again, you don't expect these guys to start a world-changing movement. What is it that turned them into world changers? Let's keep reading. Luke says, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus dies, he rises again, and he appears to them over a period of 40 days. If you saw a guy die and rise from the dead, it's going to change your life. It's going to rock your world. And that was a key part of why these disciples were so transformed that God was able to use them to change the world. And it talks about how Jesus gave them many convincing proofs. He ate with them. Someone who's dead is not able to eat anymore. He appeared to them. He talked with them. He talked with them about the kingdom of God. He actually at one point appeared to 500 of them. Some people think maybe it was a hallucination that these guys had. Really? 500 people at the same time sharing the same hallucination? Pretty unlikely. Point is... Jesus appeared to them and gave them proof that he had risen from the dead, and they were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead that they were willing to die for that belief, and several of them died for their faith in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, in the coming weeks. But I want to move ahead to something that happened at the end of this 40-day period that Luke's talking about. At the end of this 40-day period when Jesus was hanging out and talking with his disciples and showing them that he had indeed risen from the dead. The disciples came to him and they were gathered around him and they asked him, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time that you're going to free us from Roman domination? Because you see, at this time in world history, Israel was under Roman domination. Rome had come into the land of Israel, had conquered it like they had done with so many other, uh, so many other countries in the Near East at that time. And they were ruling over Israel, imposing draconian taxes, giving them some level of, of self-government, 
but ultimately they had to swear allegiance to Caesar and so on and so on and so on. And they hated the Romans. And they were looking for years, for decades, for somebody to come, for a deliverer, for a Messiah to come and rescue them from this Roman domination. And they had expected, Jesus' followers had expected that Jesus was going to be this guy, that he was going to be the one who was going to free them from Roman domination. But then this little thing called the crucifixion happens, and Jesus is dead, and their hopes are dashed. But then he rises from the dead, and they're sitting there, and they're saying, you know what? This guy's dead, and he's alive now. He can probably handle Rome. If he can handle death, he can probably handle Rome. And they're spending the last 40 days, Luke is saying, talking about the kingdom of God. And so finally, at the end of that 40 days, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, is now the time? Is this when you're going to free us from Roman domination? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We were talking about this earlier this week and one of the guys who I was talking with about this said, man, you know, if I were there at that time, I would have been pretty ticked at this whole thing, right? I mean, I changed my whole life to follow after this man. And here he is, and he says, no, now is not the time. I'm not going to restore the kingdom of Israel. I put all my hopes in him, and he's saying, no, no, now is not the time. Notice that Jesus doesn't say he's not going to do it. He says, I'm not going to do it now. Because you see, the disciples were thinking on too small of a scale. They were thinking about the nation of Israel. They were thinking about something political. They were thinking about something military. They were thinking about something national. They were thinking about something that was limited to a few thousand square miles and a, and a million or so people. Yes, Israel was going to change, but Jesus had something so much bigger in mind. They wanted to see Israel change but Jesus wanted to change the world. They wanted to see Israel delivered from Roman domination, but Jesus wanted to see the world delivered from domination to sin and to death and to sadness and to sickness and to disease and to brokenness and on and on and on. Jesus said to them, you're gonna start here in Israel. You're gonna start in Jerusalem, capital of Israel. And then you're going to move throughout Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem. And then you're going to move from there to Samaria, which is a neighboring country just north of, of Judea, just north of the nation of Israel. It's half Jewish, it's half Gentile. You're going to begin to move out from just the nation of Israel, just the Jewish people. And you're going to go from there to the people who are half Jew, half non-Jew. And then you're going to go from there to the ends of the earth. And so is Israel going to change? Absolutely. But Israel's only going to change as part of God's plan to change the world. Is Israel going to be delivered from Roman domination? Eventually, but not right now, because I've got such a bigger plan that you can't even imagine. You're thinking just about your small little country. I'm thinking about the entire world. 
And we are so much like the disciples. We're always thinking of our little kingdoms, our little lives, the things that are most important to us. And God absolutely does care about those. And he does want to see change occurring in our lives, but not in isolation because the world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around the God who created this world. And he's saying, yes, I'm going to rescue you. Yes, there's going to be change in your life. Yes, there's going to be transformation, but it's going to occur as part of my cosmic plan to redeem and rescue this broken world and set everything right to be the way that I originally created it to be. And so I've got something so much bigger in store for you, and I'm giving you the opportunity to be part of changing the world. In 1983, there was this brash 28-year-old visionary who had founded a, 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 a rinky-dink computer company in his garage. And he had the audacity to approach the CEO of PepsiCo and ask him to leave the company that was ranked at that time number 41 on the Fortune 500 list of the largest and most valuable companies in the world, and to ask him to leave that company and to come and help run this struggling, rinky-dink little computer company. And as that CEO, John Scully, tells it, he says, then, then he looked up at me and he just stared at me with that stare that only Steve Jobs has, and he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And I just gulped because I knew I would wonder for the rest of my life what I would have missed. And John Scully did leave PepsiCo and he did become the president and CEO of Apple Computer. And today, PepsiCo is pretty much where it, where it was on the Fortune 500 list. It's actually dropped about three spots now to, uh, to number 44 on the Fortune 500 list. And that rinky-dink little, at that time, almost failing computer company called Apple Computer is now number five, the, fi the fifth most valuable corporation in the entire world. And you and I are more likely to read the Bible on our iPhones than we are on a paper book. Did Steve Jobs and his followers, John Scully and others, changed the world? Absolutely. The world has changed dramatically since 1983, and Apple has had some part in that. But Steve Jobs and his followers and Apple Computer and Bill Gates and Microsoft and John Scully, all these other different people, their influence on the history of the world pales, pales in comparison to the influence that Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who was crucified as a common criminal 2,000 years ago, that he, the influence that he and his followers, including us, have had on the world. Steve Jobs and his followers changed the world, but not nearly so much as Jesus and his followers did. 
Every year, we here at Renaissance like to choose a, a verse of the year. It's a verse from the Bible that we choose to, to help us focus, uh, focus our efforts, focus our thoughts, focus our ministries for the coming year. And this year, we've chosen the verse where Jesus tells his followers that he's going to change the world through them. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've already read it, but I want to read it again. Jesus says to his followers, and effectively to us as well, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to his disciples, you are going to change the world. Actually, he says, I'm going to change the world through you. That's why we're calling this series The Acts of God, because ultimately, it's a supernatural work of God. It's not because these 11 guys were something incredible. They were anything but incredible. It's because they had an incredible God who did a supernatural work through them so that about 30 years later, at the end of the book of Acts, 30 years after Jesus was crucified as a common criminal, Christianity had spread throughout much of the known world. And 2,000 years later, here we are this morning talking and singing and reading about who Jesus is, praying to him, thanking him for how he's worked in our lives. And the world has been changed more by him than by anybody else. Whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, you're here today because of him, and his life has affected your life in more ways that you can imagine. And he's given to us, who are his followers, the task, the opportunity, the privilege to partner with him like he did with those 11 disciples, the, the, the opportunity to partner with him in changing the world, to restore the creation to the way that he originally intended it to be. He didn't want there to be all the pain and suffering and difficulties and problems and strife and all the negative things that are going on in the world around us. And he's called us to be part of changing that. And he didn't want us his creation, to be estranged from him, to have a broken relationship with him. He wanted us to have a good, a positive, a right, an intimate, a close relationship with him, one in which our sin and our guilt aren't separating us from him. And he's given us the opportunity of being his witnesses, of proclaiming the good news that because Jesus died and rose again, we can be restored to a right relationship with him. We can be reconciled with our creator. After Jesus told his disciples that they were going to change the world, the natural question, if you're reading the story of the book of Acts, is okay, so what's next? What happened after that? Where did they go from there? What's next? And that's what the book of Acts is all about. And we're going to be looking throughout this year a number of different times. We're going to have several series Throughout this year, they're going to be based in the book of Acts, and we're going to look and we're going to see how God transformed the lives of these 11 guys and how he used them and many, many others to transform and change the lives of people literally all over the, the known world at that time. And so what I want us to do for the next couple of minutes is ask ourselves that same question. What's next? What's next for you? 
What's the next step that you can take in your relationship with God at the beginning of 2016? What's the next thing that God wants you to do? If you're not sure, ask him. Stop and pray. Either right now or this afternoon, this evening, stop and pray and ask God, God, what's next? What do you have in store next for me? Maybe for you, it's finding out more about who Jesus is and what it means to have a relationship with him. Because you're here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus died. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that whole crucified thing. I'm not, I'm not so sure about the resurrection, and I'm definitely not sure about that Savior of the world thing. Okay, fine. So the next step for you might be to explore, to ask questions. Do that. Make that your next step. For others of us, maybe it means going back to A.J. Sherrill's message from last week. And as he encourages us to do, picking one area of our lives, one character quality that God exhibits and asking God to develop that in our lives this year so that we can become more and more and more like him and so that when people look at us, they'll see him and they'll be drawn to him. That transformation in our lives is part of the transformation that God wants to work in the world. Maybe the next step for you is asking God who he wants you to start praying for. Maybe he wants you to start praying for one of your friends or several of your neighbors or some of your coworkers and praying that they would come to the point where they know that Jesus of Nazareth is the savior of the world. Maybe it means stepping out on faith and sharing your faith, being a witness, telling somebody about how God has worked in your life, how God has transformed your life. Maybe it means inviting them to come to church. I don't know what that next step for you is, and maybe you don't even know what it is today, but I believe that God has something next for each of us, and we need to ask that question as we begin 2016. God, what's next in my life? What do you want to do in me what do you want to do through me so that you can use me as part of your cosmic plan to change this world? And my prayer is that as we look back about a year from now on 2016, as we look back, we'll be able to see incredible things that God has done in us as individuals, but also through us, both as individuals and as a church, we'll be able to see how God has changed our individual lives, our families, perhaps our neighborhoods, our communities, and maybe the lives of people in different parts of the world. So let's, let's ask God, Lord, what's next? What do you have for me? How do you want to use me to be part of your plan to change the world? Let's pray together. So Father, it's a pretty amazing thought that you use these 11 guys, fishermen, uneducated people, tax collector, people who were so afraid that they ran away when Jesus was crucified, that, that you used these 11 guys to change their world and that here we are 2,000 years later talking about them. And it's a pretty amazing thought to think that you have chosen us, that you want us to participate with you in your plan, your cosmic plan of redemption and rescue and restoration. And 
I pray for myself, I pray for each of us that we would ask this question, what's next? What is it that you want us to do? Father, I pray that you would show us and then I pray that we would have the faith to trust you and to do what it is that you're calling us to do. And I pray that as we do that, we would see you work powerfully both in us and through us to change us and ultimately to change the people around us so that they too can come to know you and praise you and worship you and honor you and glorify you. And we thank you because you are our creator. We thank you because you're our redeemer. We thank you because you're our sustainer. We thank you because you're our friend. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks you guys for coming out this morning. And again, I'll be hanging out up front if you wanna come up and say hi.